Okay, yeah, great. Sounds good. So I want to welcome everyone back to uh, uh, to our the rest of our session. Uh, our next uh, uh, our next session is about uh, reimagining supply chain, which is a very very important topic. Uh, virtually every company that I know of is facing a lot of dislocation related to the whole su supply chain problem. But I'm very, very pleased uh, to uh, have uh, today's panel, uh, Raj Gupta, who is uh, formerly was the CEO of Roman Haas, is currently the chairman of, uh, of Antor, which is a chemicals life science uh, company, and uh, Aptiv, which is one of the largest uh, automotive uh, parts and systems companies in the world. Uh, and Prakash Chandrasekhar, who is a partner in chemicals uh, at the uh, uh, Boston Consulting Group. And specifically, uh, he serves companies across the chemical value chain uh, in their most critical issues related to strategy, supply chain design, operational uh, performance improvement and sustainability. And in the case of Raj, he's just had a long track record of very successfully managing uh, uh, companies and so this is an issue that he's had to deal with on and off over time, but for which the companies that he's uh, chair of uh, are also dealing with the same issue. So we have really two very highly qualified uh, 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 panels uh, who can share their perspectives, but also from two different uh, two different angles. Uh, what, uh, what we've decided to do is uh, we'll start uh, and uh, with Raj. Uh, Raj is going to... Um, uh, give some uh, overview comments about uh, about uh, his perspective on the on the challenge and so forth, and then we will uh, then uh, uh, have Prakash uh, go through a number of points from his point of view in terms of advising clients and so forth. So, Raj, let me turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Peter, for that nice introduction. And Prakash and I are pleased to share our perspective on one of what I call the hottest as well as topical challenge for, of supply chain and disruptions which everybody every day is seeing and experiencing with our customers, every company around the globe, including yours as well. And I saw some of the commentary that uh, Ed shared with you in, your pre in the previous session. I'll certainly do my best to look back and reflect on how what was a super efficient global supply chain across industries for a very long time suddenly became incredibly inefficient and high level of challenges that is posed for all of us. Uh, Prakash will actually offer some practical approaches based on his experiences to share what some of the short-term solutions for this are, but also look at how we should all be thinking about mid-term, long-term, to make the supply chain more resilient than what we saw with what happened with COVID in the last two years. So, you know, if, if you go back and think about just in time and super efficient supply chains across all industries evolved over the last two decades, were primarily driven by globalization, commoditization, incredible transportation infrastructure, as well as drive capital and cost efficiencies across all industries. And of course, information technology was a key enabler here as, well, here as well. 
And you know, all the companies across all industries took advantage of labor cost arbitrage and moved to asset light model in pretty much all the industries by moving production and not only production, but even uh, what I call uh, some of the labor force, a skilled labor force to outside their own home country. Obviously, this supply chain change really led to significant increase in complexity, single sourcing in certain cases, and exposure to geopolitical risk across the board. The COVID pandemic, a true blue swan event, resulting in steep decline in the demand in the second quarter of last year, and dramatic resurgence starting in the fourth quarter of last year, exposed the underlying weakness of the supply chain to complexity, labor disruptions and shortages, overload of shipping infrastructure, air, sea, and land, unexpected natural disasters, where were there earthquakes in Japan, flooding in Texas, rain and wind storms, fires and heat waves around the world. And the result was substantial increase in cost and disruption in supply chains. I know the interesting thing from my vantage point is, meanwhile, there were underlying long-term drivers which were going to lead to long-term supply chain disruption anyway. And those included, if you think about automotive industry, which is moving from gasoline and diesel engines to complete new technology of autonomous driving and electric vehicles, just to name one. And all the shift from in the energy industry away from fossil fuel to other alternative sources. Then the pressure of ESG and climate control and zero emission, which has huge impact across all the industries, not only in the manufacturing, but also transportation. And of course, the frequency and unpredictable delay of the natural disasters, as well as geopolitical risk of what we are discussing today with not only China, but across the globe. And all of a sudden, topic of supply chain has become everyday headline and grab the attention of CEOs. You heard Ed, I know all the companies I'm associated with, amount of time CEOs, CFOs, and the line management is spending on this matter. And of course, the politicians and the government included is quite extraordinary. So, you know, I'm gonna share a real life example of supply chain disruptions that has gotten attention of everybody is the semiconductors. And of course, this shortage has impacted just about every end market you can think of, from automobiles, to mobile phones and laptops, to toys, to everyday home appliances, as well as the construction market, which is causing delays in the home constructions and increased cost as well. Let me take example of one of the companies I've served as board of directors for 12 years and last seven years as chairman, which Peter mentioned, Aptiv. The start of that company was Delphi, and we split the company in two about four years ago into Aptiv, which is focused on electric vehicles, hybrids, as well as autonomous driving. And the classic example where semiconductor supply chain has impacted the company dramatically. And it's not only that, there are many other factors like material shortages of nylon polymers, transportation, as well as the labor costs and labor availability. For example, I mentioned in the second quarter of last year, auto demand essentially disappeared. It was down by 18, 90% around the globe. 
and that led to cancellation of semiconductor orders by most auto companies and auto suppliers. Of course, what happened was, which is what has been a miracle when you think about it, is how all of us in the really coped with COVID, and we still continue to survive and thrive. Virtual systems, new the increased demand of mobile phones and mobile devices really took over. And of course, what happened was when the demand came back for the automotive industry, there was practically no supply of semiconductors. And part of it is also the complexity of the semiconductor supply chain. For example, US uses 40 plus percent of the semiconductor production in the world, but only produces 12%. And even in the supply chain, it's not only the Koreans and the Taiwanese that are major producers, but the amount of post-processing that gets done in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the impact of pandemic has played out big time. And the cycle time in semiconductor production at the high end is takes six months to produce from the wafer start to getting it to the customer because of the complexity of the manufacturing process. So Aptiv, give you an example of how Aptiv was impacted by this. So this year we thought would be a normal recovery, things will get back to normal. And with the semiconductor and other material shortages, as well as availability of workforce, we are going to have 10% less revenue than what we projected. And we are talking about one and a half billion dollar less revenue this year than what we projected this time of the year. Equally important, not only the lost profit on the revenue, we had five, $600 million increase in costs between labor shortages and, and ability to really sustain production when the customers wanted it, inflation, rise in the cost of freight cost, which I think Ed mentioned how many hundreds of millions of dollars, as well as the material cost. And I would say, you know, the CEO there, Kevin Clark and his team probably spent an hour every day more talking to customers, talking to suppliers, managing the supply chain every single day. What has been interesting though, you know, I think our ability to navigate through this process short term has obviously been very painful and demanding expensive. But the fact, and I think this goes back to the point that Ed made, and I'm going to actually talk about this topic at Societe de Chimie Industrial next week, I think, Peter? Yeah, on the 16th. So on the 16th, about leading transformation. Yeah. And Aptiv is a classic example of anticipating that transition to electric vehicles and high voltage. And we transformed our portfolio over the last seven years. And we are growing at about 10 to 12 percentage points higher than the auto production, quarter after quarter, year after year. And the last quarter we go 18% above. And what's it allowed us to do that our stock price is hit really high. The valuation of the company is close to $50 billion from being bankrupt about nine years, 10 years ago. So I think this goes back to how do you anticipate, how do you execute, and how do you pivot when the crisis hits? So I, I think that's a great, great example of what I have seen as to how the companies and the leadership have adjusted their plans long-term to address these, these challenges. I'm going to now pass it on to my fellow panelist, Prakash Chandrasekhar from BCG. Prakash has been working with clients across industries and around the globe to adopt new tools and processes to address 
the short term as well as how to address the term long-term challenges and reimagine the supply chain for the future to create resilience in the system. By the way, Prakash, I just found out yesterday, is also an alum of IIT Bombay in chemical engineering. So he knows more about this industry than I do. I graduated from the same institution back in 1967, but in mechanical engineering. So I'm now going to turn it going back to being about chemicals and defer to you, Prakash, to talk about real practical steps that our attendees here and the companies can really use going forward. Thank you, Raj. Prakash, can you uh, start? Yeah, uh, ha happy to. Again, uh, thanks, Raj, uh, for the wonderful setup and framing the problem so well. And also to you, Peter, for uh, the opportunity to, to speak at your conference. Um, I would like to start uh, by, by spending a few minutes building upon Raj what uh, what you the problems that you described and reflecting on how we got here, uh, and then we'll talk about you know the uh, uh, actions that uh, companies are taking uh, to um, you know uh, solve this challenge over the near term, mid term, and, and longer term horizon. So. You know, in, in the past, uh, when, and, and by past, I mean, say, five, 10 years ago, when companies would optimize uh, their supply chain design, or in some cases, you know, take a clean sheet approach to uh, restructuring their full supply chain, it typically went like this. You know, one would start with um, the business strategy and basically ask the question, given your choices around where you want to play and how you're going to win, and the demand patterns uh, within those, uh, you know, chosen markets. Uh, the the first question is, you know, how many segments are needed from a supply chain perspective uh, in order to uh, fulfill your business strategy? And then second, within each of those segments, what are the target service levels that you would need, uh, you know, to to execute on that? And that formed, you know, the design basis, the design parameters. Uh, around which you know it essentially came down to an optimization problem between three variables. One was around fixed assets, where do you place your your plants, what scale, and so forth. And then second around working capital, and third around operating cost in order to meet you know the target service levels. And you know as Raj mentioned in his uh, opening remarks, with uh, with the globalization came increased competition and uh, you know a greater pressure for all of us to re reduce cost. And as an industry, uh, we responded. You know we responded uh, pretty much by getting each function that touches that end-to-end -end supply chain uh, to increase. Uh, efficiency. So procurement made a big push to reduce cost, uh, and frequently that meant uh, global sourcing or you know sourcing from lower cost countries. Manufacturing went about it uh, by uh, you know making a big push on capturing scale economies. So bigger assets, but fewer assets, more volume, greater OEE, which basically meant lower cost per ton. And then supply chain made a big push towards just-in-time models, which basically reduced working capital. And all of these, uh, you know, different levers, you know, when taken in isolation are good. But when you add it up, uh, what ended up happening is that the supply chain uh, across the system, you know, became brittle and less uh, capable to absorb exogenous shocks. Uh, into the, uh, you know, that impacted the system and it set off, you know, a chain of events that cut across industries. 
And frankly, it's been this way for several years. And as Raj mentioned, it took a combination of different factors like COVID, like the Texas freeze, uh, you know, the different storms to really, um, you know, uh, bring this issue to the forefront uh, and, um, you know, expose the fundamental weakness that's present in our supply chains. And, you know, we're seeing a number of companies uh, starting to take action on this front. And, uh, you know, I'd like to start with, you know, some of the longer term design issues first. And what we are seeing, you know, across the board, both in the chemical industry and um, other industrial sector more broadly, uh, is that in addition to the three variables that I mentioned, um, which is fixed cost, working capital, operating cost, companies are now starting to take two additional variables into consideration. Uh, one is resilience, and then the second is carbon. Uh, and you know, let me let me start on each uh, talk about each of these uh, variables and uh, starting with resilience. So you know, in the past, resilience was largely ignored, uh, and if it was considered, it was done so on a qualitative basis, which which basically meant, you know, the primary driver of supply chain design was cost and capital efficiency. And if you had two different options uh, that were primarily, uh, you know, uh, equal, uh, then you would take the qualitative considerations into account. But what we are seeing now more and more is that companies are taking a highly analytical approach to intentionally design resilience into the system so that it can absorb these external shocks. So how are they doing that? Uh, one uh, approach that we have seen is starting to gain a lot of traction uh, in the market is this concept of a digital twin, uh, where you build, you know, this virtual model of your end-to-end -end supply chain, uh, essentially starting from every supply point, and in some cases, your supplier's supplier, uh, you know, that goes all the way to your manufacturing asset to the different inventory buffers, to your different customer ship to points. And it takes into account, you know, all the different transportation modes, be it rail, road, or barge, ocean vessel, what have you, the ports that are used. It's essentially a, a virtual depiction of your physical supply chain as it exists today. So why is this helpful? It's helpful because it allows you to simulate at a very granular level the economic impact of any number of plausible events. So if you want to think about, you know, if there was a force majeure uh, at one of your uh, supplier uh, locations, what would that do to your uh, operation? Or if there was a Gulf a storm in the Gulf Coast, or if there was congestion in one of the ports, how, what would the ripple effects be of that event? And when you think about it that way, you know, ultimately risk, uh, you can think of it as, you know, the economic impact of an event multiplied by the probability of, of an event occurring. So, you know, this, this analysis that I just described using the digital twin gives you the economic impact of any event. And you can think through different probability scenarios of, you know, a storm or a, a port congestion or any number of different disruptive factors. And, and what this technique essentially gives you, it gives your team the ability to not only quantify risk, but it 
it uh, allows you to frame a business case uh, for risk reduction initiatives, which in the past was harder to do when you had an uneasy feeling, but you really couldn't put dollars uh, next to that. And it also gives you the ability to put a counterbalance on cost and capital efficiency when you're optimizing the overall system. So that's you know the topic of resilience. Let me uh, pivot a little bit uh, to the second topic of uh, carbon. So we have COP26 that is going on right now in Glasgow. Uh, and if you guys are, are following you know, the events, last week, uh, the, the president of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, in her speech, uh, urged countries to, quote, put a price on carbon because nature cannot pay that price anymore. You know, very powerful words. Now let's let's assume for a minute that politicians and political leaders around the world listen to her and implement some form of carbon pricing. And you know, the jury is out on whether it's a carbon tax or you know an emission trading scheme, whatever it, it may be. If there is a price on carbon, there are three scenarios that that arise. Scenario one is you know there is a globally consistent price on carbon. Uh, scenario two is there is a carbon price, but it varies across the world in different world region or by country. And scenario three is where there is a carbon price. It varies by region or country. But on top of that, there is a carbon border adjustment mechanism, CBAM or you know, a carbon border tax, as it's commonly known. Um, and the spirit behind that is to create a level playing field uh, for countries that have a higher price on carbon vis-a-vis -vis imports from other countries that may have either a low price or no price uh, for carbon at all. And, you know, I'm sure you, you have noticed that the European Union plans to implement CBAM uh, between January 2023 to January 2026, so over that three-year time frame. And a lot of the details are still being worked out. So what does the question, you know, is what, what does these uh, scenarios mean for your supply chain, for your asset footprint? You know, do, uh, you know, you will need to provide traceability of uh, product uh, across uh, your, your supply chain and be able to allocate uh, the carbon emissions down to individual product lines if you're importing into these different markets. And then the other question is, does it create a market opportunity for you in some areas where uh, competitors from other parts of the world may no longer be able to supply that region? Or does it create a risk for you as well? So, you know, this is a whole big uh, issue that is uh, coming at us uh, very rapidly. Uh, and uh, what we have noticed is not many people are talking about it. So I would urge really folks in, on this call and in this room to think through, um, you know, what, what uh, a carbon price or world with carbon price and CBAM could mean for your supply chain going forward, because uh, it's going to be bumpy, uh, even more bumpier structurally um, relative to what we have witnessed at least over the past 18 to 20 months. Um, I would want to uh, pivot a little bit to some of the near-term and mid-term challenges uh, as well. And, you know, in supply chain parlance, uh, when we say mid-term, we usually mean months. You know, the unit of measure is months, so we're talking about a planning horizon. And when I say near-term, it's more in days and weeks when you're, you know, talking about, you know, execution, fulfilling orders, and getting product out the door. 
and and this is a pretty deep topic but i will touch on three areas where we are seeing the most um, uh, interest and in, in activity across our client base one is the topic of demand planning the second is uh, how do you respond uh, effectively and efficiently to challenges as they arise uh, and third is how do you build the required capabilities within the organization? So let me touch on each one of these quickly. Um, the first one is around demand planning. So this is an area where we have seen, um, you know, advanced analytics, AI and machine learning models really deliver, uh, you know, tremendous impact and such models, you know, learn over time, they get better. Uh, they reduce bias, uh, they improve forecast accuracy, and most importantly, uh, they free up salespeople uh, and give them time back to spend more time with, with customers. So, um, so that is topic number one. And what we are also seeing on, on this demand planning is, you know, in the past when statistical forecasting models were used, uh, it was mostly done with internal data. So based on your sales order transactions, you know, how many products are going to what customers, what segments, which regions, what pack type and so forth. But now we are seeing a greater push uh, to combine your internal data with external data, such as, uh, you know, we are seeing companies use credit card transactions web traffic, social media data, unstructured data from, you know, from around the internet, uh, consumer sentiment models, looking at government stimulus spending uh, to, to generate demand in a number of end markets that we as an industry are suppliers into, uh, and translating all of that into a demand forecast over multiple months that then, you know, constantly gets refreshed and, uh, you know, improved over time. Uh, the, the second piece that I mentioned in, in terms of the near and midterm is, uh, you know, about how you react because we all live in a world where things don't always work according to plan. There are changes both on the demand side, there are logistical bottlenecks and other issues to work around. And here too, what we are seeing is, uh, you know, taking uh, a, a highly analytical approach uh, to react to these uh, challenges. and. The digital twin concept that I had explained, uh, you know, when it comes to structural design of supply chains is also extremely helpful to help companies, um, you know, simulate what are the different possible interventions when some of these challenges occur and uh, take the most effective way forward in a highly fluid market environment. And then the third piece, you know, I spoke quite a bit about data and analytics and they are important, but ultimately it comes down to using the power of analytics to change the behavior of the people out on the front lines who are making these day-to-day -day operating decisions. And that really comes down, you know, to the question of talent. And, um, you know, and I'm sure you would have noticed if you've been trying to build digital analytics capabilities within, within your organization, uh, trying to find experienced uh, data scientists uh, who bring functional expertise in supply chain and who have some familiarity or exposure to the chemical industry, it's uh, it's a daunting task in today's market. Uh, so, you know, and and given the importance of the skill set to your to your organization, 
as leaders, we really ought to be thinking about, you know, how to access such talent. Should you build? Should you buy? Should you rent? And, you know, really the answer will vary from company to company. Um, there was some, we have seen a range of different models. Uh, if you have the scale to hire, you know, fresh uh, data science talent and train them in a lot of different functional areas in uh, your business, that's great. That's ideal. Uh, but most companies don't have the scale to do that. Uh, and try to find uh, ways to quote rent that talent from partners who have the scale to do that on behalf of a number of different uh, organizations uh, might prove to be you know a more suitable option in in a lot of these cases. And then third, uh, I, I want to switch uh, to the theme of you know a net zero uh, supply chain, and this is you know a topic of tremendous importance i uh, you know in the conversation with uh, ed breen i noticed uh, you know there were a few questions on this topic uh, it's uh, you know critical to us as an industry and society as a whole and i would like to split this up uh, into two categories uh, one is around scope 1 and 2 emissions and the second is around scope 3 emissions so scope one and two, as you all may be familiar, is emissions either in your manufacturing process or from energy uh, that you consume as part of your manufacturing process. And, you know, I'm sure you all are all looking at, um, uh, you know, building decarbonization plans, building site level abatement curves, uh, looking at energy efficiency projects, buying renewable power, uh, looking at CCUS or other technologies. So that's that action you know, needs to be taken, it's necessary. And as you put a price on carbon, to my earlier point, a lot of these technologies will start to become you know, economically viable as well. Uh, but when it comes to scope three, uh, which is all you know, your uh, scope three upstream, which is emissions your suppliers have, and scope three downstream, which is all the logistics, shipping and transportation um, emissions, plus end of life emissions, uh, you know, that is very complex. And as an industry, uh, what, what we have found is uh, companies don't quite know where to start on this yet. Uh, everyone is just at the starting blocks uh, trying to figure this out. Um, it is very complex with hundreds, if not thousands of suppliers who are all at various stages in their own net zero journey. Uh, and it's a moving target because as your suppliers take action, your baseline changes and it needs to be constantly updated um, and refreshed. And, you know, this is another area where, uh, you know, we think digital and analytics uh, can play uh, a significant role um, because, you know, we, we need to prepare for a world where carbon reporting becomes as important and rigorous as financial reporting. And, and that world is coming, uh, especially when, you know, you're talking about border taxes and, uh, you know, carbon product footprint, uh, you know, products, carbon footprints. So, you know, for, for all of this to gain traction, uh, you know, it's absolutely critical that uh, carbon abatement and some of these, uh, you know, sustainability considerations are fully integrated into uh, you know the supplier selection and supplier management process uh, and for that uh, to happen um, you know a number of procurement organizations uh, i have worked with in the past uh, you know are evaluated on year on year cost savings and we think you know that in and of itself is not um, you know complete uh, we really got to look at it in terms of business value 
And part of that business value comes from building resilience in your supply chain. Part of that business value comes from sustainability. And part of that comes from maintaining cost competitiveness. So all of these elements need to be looked at, you know, in conjunction together, which is really the model where as an organization, we need to move towards. So, you know, uh, I, I talk a lot here, but let me just summarize by saying that, you know, in this whole supply chain area over the next few years, um, you know, we're going to see tremendous change and tremendous dislocation, uh, which is an opportunity. It's an an opportunity for all of us to gain competitive advantage to get ahead of it as Ed Breen mentioned um, and uh, really you know outdo uh, your, your your competitors so with that let me pause here uh, and uh, give it back back to you Peter so yeah and we'll be talking about some of the ESG and you know carbon neutral issues later on uh, at another session um, uh, we're going to leave a little bit of time at the end for questions, but I, I want to pose a couple of, uh, make one comment, but also pose a question to uh, panelists. You know, obviously there's data part, but then there's also the, just how you operate your business, right? And in the near term, what has happened is a lot of companies have been stocking up on inventory and parts and so forth, which of course makes it even worse because if people then do that, they just, they, they, they really suck up the supply of materials. Uh, but that's one thing. And of course, obviously that affects your economics because if you're carrying lots of raw materials inventory, then now your base of uh, you know what you need to get a return on goes up, right? The other though is that famous phrase, which now has become a curse word, which is just-in-time manufacturing. It used to be the thing that everyone, and now people are really rethinking that. And uh, because for a lot of reasons, one is supply chain, but also geopolitical, right? To what extent can I depend on Vietnam or China and so forth if there's a long uh, distance to, to, to ship, but also the cost? So I guess my first question to, to Raj is, to what extent do the companies that you are involved with, but also other companies that you know of, to what extent are they rethinking this just in time, but also where they uh, where they're sourcing raw materials, right? You know, because one of the reactions is just to move lots of things to suppliers that are closer by or in your own country. So, what to what extent do you see that happening? Revisiting this just in time, but also where you're getting your raw materials and, and energy. Well, I think, uh, Peter, the short answer is it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. In the sense that, you know, so much of the time and energy is today used on addressing short term. But I'll give you examples of how people are thinking about midterm and longer term. So, for example, number of large OEMs with resources have been talking about taking in-house the production of semiconductors. Because one of the interesting things about the semiconductors per se in automotive industry, it's older technology. It is not the latest technology in semiconductors that's used in the car manufacturing. So one of the things they're doing is to get self-reliance even within their own shop. The second thing they're starting to work on, and this is going to take time, have more transparency of information between your customers, yourself, and your suppliers. Because as you know, what typically happens in these forecasts, your know, customer wants to inflate the demand to be sure that they can get supply from their supplier. 
the suppliers take the same approach with their suppliers to make sure that they can get whatever they need whenever they need. And, and I think some of it goes back to what Prakash's point was. I believe, at least from what I've seen, the question is it's not an obvious answer. Is how do we improve the reliability of the forecast? And how do we move away from historical data reliance or our reliance on the sales force, which is very internally focused, to really think a data-based forecast in collaboration with your supply chain partners? And if you combine those two, you know, even if you increase the accuracy by 20, 30, 40%, it has dramatic impact in terms of the customer satisfaction, resilience of the supply chain, as well as cost. So, you know, my long answer really is that, you know, this is going to be an optimization and learning process. And it is not, you know, obviously technology will have a role to play, but how we interact with our partners, how we think about the demand forecasting and in tandem, address the issues, be willing to take some additional cost instead of relying on one single source, have multiple source, some sources that are nearby recognizing that there will be high cost source, but all in the mix of overall design of supply chains to have this resilience and zero carbon. So, so I, I think everybody's thinking while they're fighting this short-term crisis, thinking about the midterm and long-term from multiple perspectives at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, another question before we open it up to questions to the audience is this. Uh, as the two of you have mentioned, the source of the current crisis is coming from many, many different factors. Uh, and it's it's everything from, uh, you know, misforecasting demand and, and, and in, in semiconductors and therefore not gearing up uh, to just, uh, for example, just the truck, people don't want to drive trucks anymore, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and some of these things are short-term or temporary. You know, I'm confident at some point the semiconductor supply thing will get solved, although it takes time to build these facilities. But others have been going on for a long time. People have been dropping out as truck drivers for a really long time. And so it's not something that was a either a short-term problem or one that will necessarily uh, then correct itself. So I guess my question to both of you is, how do you, if, if you think about the six, seven, eight factors that are, that cause the current supply chain problem, which are those that you think are temporary? And yes, they're a nuisance now, but, but they may go away. And which ones are longer term where uh, if you're smart, you're gonna have to find some way around it long-term. And this question to both of you. Sure. Prakash, why don't you go first? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, let me start with the with the labor um, uh, question first. So I was uh, reading uh, somewhere uh, yesterday that, you know, during the first uh, three, three months of uh, COVID, uh, you know, we lost uh, about 20 million jobs. Yeah, 20 million jobs in, uh, you know, the first two to three months. Uh, now that was right, you know, during the, the, the that initial dive. 
And over time, you know, once the demand started to come back up, uh, you know, we can't hire 20 million people back in uh, in three months. It's just not not designed uh, to do that. So not, not in three months, not in six months. So part of that, you know, is temporary. You know, it's going to uh, sort itself out over a period of time, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the labor shortage there will, will work itself out. But but that also masks some of the structural issues that you mentioned, Peter. Say, like for example, you know the the driver uh, challenge, and this is one again, you know, with uh, autonomous uh, things. You know, we ought to be uh, you know thinking about how to address that, and then you know a broader question around, uh, especially in the trades, is how do you build uh, you know the uh, a pipeline of talent? You know, I live in Houston, so that's a question that keeps coming up uh, in, in the Gulf Coast areas, how do you build, uh, you know, the, uh, the trade talent and, uh, you know, should you adopt a model in Germany or other parts uh, of Europe where you have a good apprenticeship program and what's the role of, uh, you know, the community colleges ought to play and what should we as an industry and government, et cetera, do, you know, to solve some of these, uh, you know, longer term issues. So that's a little bit on the, on the labor side. Yeah, but, but I, I'm actually trying to say not because the labor supply is not just a supply chain problem, which is how people can their costs and so forth. I want correct. to just focus right on the supply chain issue, right? Sure. And that's why I mentioned truck drivers because truck yes. drivers really is purely a supply chain issue. So sure. if you can, if the two of you can tick off the six or seven factors that you mentioned they're creating and just simply say which ones are temporary and which are long term. Right. Sure. I think the audience here needs to understand that. So yeah. either way, just run down the list to say which ones do you consider temporary and which ones do you consider really structural and long term? Yeah. So so on the structural long term side, what we have found is historically, you know, companies have not uh, sub, uh, uh, what do you call qualified many suppliers. So even if, uh, you know, you uh, um, and this is probably a, a part of the drive for efficiency uh, and uh, qualifying a supplier uh, in a lot of cases is a long and arduous process. And you as a, com uh, as a chemical company need to qualify yourself with your customers and so forth. So to me, this is a longer term structural problem that will work itself out over time, but it's not, it's not temporary. Uh, another issue, you know, when it comes to things like container balances around ports and so forth. So, I mean, this is one that, uh, you know, I would say is uh, a bit more temporary in nature. And, uh, you know, once some of these uh, demand supply balances get resolved, I think the container balance uh, question will start to work itself out. Um, you know, the, we, uh, the, the, the whole Suez Canal blockage, uh, you know, that was uh, caught the media attention for a while that worked itself out. But, you know, things related to that, you know, when it comes to ocean freight on certain trade lanes and how volatile it is on certain lanes, you know, that will go up and down. I think, you know, with uh, additional uh, capacity that uh, would uh, is more in the order of months before before we see, you know, some balance uh, when it comes to, to pricing. I do think, uh, you know, some of the challenges that I mentioned in terms of how, uh, you know, the carbon tax would play out and the moves that companies start to make in anticipation of, uh, you know, carbon pricing, 
that is a longer term, uh, you know, uh, issue that you ought to be keeping uh, an eye on in terms of, uh, you know, where your supply chain footprint is, is evolving over time. Okay. Well, Those we have things. one minute. We have one minute left. So I'm going to allow if someone has a question that uh, they ask. Okay. Go ahead and identify yourself and ask the question. Hello, my name is Shada Sanandi. I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer for Encino. We're in Circular Chemicals. And I guess what I'm wondering is if what we're talking about here isn't really a larger structural problem and not having our whole enterprise set up for resilience. I mean, we're, we're addressing one thing that's gone wrong. Well, I mean, many things have caused this one, one thing, the supply chain issue. But in the military college, the U.S. military college, there's this concept of VUCA, that we're living in times that are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and that structurally, if you want to be successful, you have to be able to manage and lead in ways that address each of those factors. And I feel like this is just an example of getting ourselves into a situation where we are so dependent on things going just right for them to function and not having thought structurally of the bigger picture yeah. of how, how resilient are we. Well, that's and a that problem with just-in-time is just-in-time doesn't leave you much leeway, right? Exactly. exactly. So, what I'm, exactly. So what I'm saying is, I think there's sort of a larger structural yeah. problem than just the supply chain okay. issue. So, how we think about a business and how it responds yeah. to customer needs. So, that's a good comment, not a question really, but a comment and, and certainly a, a valid one. One last question, and then we're going to end this session. Carlos? I have a question. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. I'm curious, you know, uh, particularly with the UPRCAR, since you're an international consultancy. You know, all this uh, argument about the disruption of our supply chains are from the perspective of the users, not the suppliers. I wonder uh, if you've had any experience with the actual suppliers that suffer, of course, some of the same uh, effects because they can't sell what we can't buy because we can't produce. But yeah, how do yeah. they think about making more robust supply chains? Sure. Well, so you know, yeah. I, I, let, me, let me take that. So, you know, I, I think the chemical industry is unique in that we are customers and suppliers of each other. So, uh, you know, we our fortunes kind of rise uh, and, and fall together in, in a number of ways. So, you know, uh, I think it was uh, like in patent coatings, uh, both PPG and Exalta and some of these companies uh, talked about, you know, how their sales went down because auto production went down because of the semiconductor crisis. So, you know, we are all uh, living uh, through some of these uh, challenges on both the buy side and the sell side. And uh, what, what companies, again, are starting to do on the commercial angle is uh, think through uh, you know, how exactly are they serving? What percent of your revenue comes from, you know, one sector, one customer? Uh, how best uh, should you manage uh, the commercial risk in terms of the portfolio of contracts? Uh, you know, are you tying it to raw materials? Are you exposing yourself to uh, market movements? How much on contract versus spot? So I think the, the whole commercial strategy and, and how risk uh, which supply chain is one element of risk plays into that is something that is being looked at by by business leaders on on the commercial side. Yeah. Well, thank you very thank you very much. And I got to tell you, this is such a huge problem that you know there's so many dimensions. But I want to thank our two panelists, uh, Raj and Prakash, for some very very good insights on the issue. 
uh, and this is very important, maybe we should have some follow-on webcast or something on this issue because we're all really worrying about it. Now, the bottom line is we have an ecosystem that was very much built on, remember back in the 80s, just in time, the Japanese, and we all shifted to that. And there has to be some major rethinking about how we operate our businesses around this because the list is only partially uh, temporary and a lot of the factors are long-term. So thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Prakash. And I think Raj, you have to, I think, go back to a board meeting. Great. Thank you, Peter.